Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for joining us today, everybody. You know, you can follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast, and what we normally do is we tweet about things that we've either mentioned on the show or are uh, related to topics that we've discussed on the show. So uh, we encourage you to follow us at Next Track Cast. The International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, which I can hereafter now refer to as the IFPI, thank goodness, releases an annual global music report. And our friend Andy Doe subscribes to it, and he let us know when the uh, latest report came out at the end of April that maybe we should be taking vinyl a little more seriously. So Andy joins us uh, on the show today. Andy, how are you? It's great to see you. Thank you very much for having me on the show again. Of course. Andy, back in episode 51, we had you on to discuss whether vinyl was better than CD. And it was an interesting overview of the various arguments of the vinyl fans and the CD fans and discussing which one sounds better. And I invite listeners to listen to it. We basically came to the conclusion that CD does sound better, but that vinyl has its own subjective reasons for interesting people in listening to this nostalgic format. And we wanted to get you on the show today to talk about the future of vinyl. What is the future of vinyl records? Well, that's an excellent question. But I think before we hypothesize about the future of vinyl, we should take a moment to look at, at the, the present of vinyl. And maybe the best place to start that is with the past of vinyl, which is as the format that was largely replaced by the CD. So in the uh, late 80s, in the early 90s, vinyl sales fell off as compact discs became the format of choice for most music consumption. And as as we discussed on, on the show last time we talked about this, this was mostly because uh, CD represents a really good compromise between uh, portability and durability and audio quality. And vinyl might be lovely in a lot of ways, but it doesn't work in the car. You know, that just reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Kings of the Road by Vim Vendors. And it's about an itinerant movie projector repairman. And he has one of these little seven-inch vinyl record players in the front of his truck. And while he's driving, he's slipping records into it. So you can play vinyl in the car, but you can't play 12-inch. Right. And it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be a super satisfactory audiophile listening experience. Um, vinyl sales fell off as CDs became popular, but what's happened is that now people have begun downloading music, uh, streaming music. Vinyl seen a, a bit of a resurgence, and really, what's happening here is that rather than there being a single format that everybody has to has to use to satisfy the this this compromise of quality and and kind of it's it's tactile nature and and all of the things that you might look for in an audio format now if all you want is music conveniently where you are you can stream it and it's super easy and if you want a physical thing then you can have vinyl and if you're if you're a vinyl collector kind of a consumer it's quite likely that you consume so much music that you'll also have some sort of a streaming subscription and so then the inconvenience of vinyl is not so much of an issue before you because you can still listen to that music in your car you can listen to it on your phone you can listen to it wherever you are but for the cover art instead of having that in a in a little jewel case you got your cover art 
in a, in a package you can put on the wall. And as a result, vinyl has become much more popular to the point that vinyl now is selling for the first time as well as it did in 1994. Now, it's interesting because every once in a while I see a graph on the internet that shows vinyl sales and it starts usually in the mid-90s or around 2000 where it's near zero and then it peaks up almost tangentially. But when you zoom out and you look at that graph, there's this big mountain going up to the 80s that starts going down and then this little tiny hump at the end. So the vinyl market was in free fall already. What was the peak of vinyl sales then? So vinyl sales peaked in 1981. That's how far you'd have to go back to find a time when vinyl was really the only major format on which you could you could buy a high fidelity recording. And in 1981, globally there were 1.1 billion discs sold on vinyl. And so uh, what we're looking at now is about 5% of that, a 20th of the sales of the the peak in 1981. But this is important because although it's a relatively still a relatively small portion of the total music sales it is now a very large proportion of physical music sales so uh, globally we're looking at about 3.7 percent of all of the global trade music revenues come from vinyl sales but that makes up 12.2% of all the revenue that comes from physical music sales. And that's that's globally. In some markets, uh, the larger and richer markets, the proportion is considerably higher. So uh, the biggest ones are Canada and the Netherlands at about 30% of all of the revenue from physical music sales comes from vinyl. Uh, in the US, it's 27.6%. And because the US is a very large music market, it's by far the world's largest music market, 27% of US physical music sales would make vinyl sales in the US on their own a top 10 global music market. Now, of course, vinyl records are more expensive. And I'm looking on Amazon UK, We'll take Dark Side of the Moon as an example because it's a, a very popular album on vinyl. It sells for £18 and the CD is £7.45 and you can get it used for £5. So vinyl is at least twice as expensive as buying a CD. That's right. It is possible to sell vinyl at a higher price. And the other thing that you'll notice about uh, the titles that sell well on vinyl. Yeah, what are the top 10 vinyl records that sold last year? Do you have that data? Okay, so I do have that data for the US. In the US, the number one vinyl album last year was uh, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, sold 72,000 units on vinyl. Uh, number two was The Beatles' Abbey Road at 66,000. Worth pointing out that Sgt. Pepper with, was the new remastering, and I believe it sold as a double final album with the original mastering and the new remastering. It was the 50th anniversary of the release, so it was very special. Right, and so there was a reissue, and they reissued both on CD and on vinyl, and vinyl represented about 10% of its sales. So overall, that album sold globally about 0.7 million units, 700,000 units, so about 10% of that was vinyl. Which doesn't sound like a lot, and even the 700,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, that's still nearly a million copies of a 50-year-old record. That's right, and it still made it one of the best-selling albums of last year. The uh, the days of 
every number one selling over a million units in its first week have certainly gone. So uh, Sgt. Pepper last year was the 19th best-selling album in the world by selling 700,000 units over the course of a year. Okay, so you gave us the first two vinyl bestsellers. Go down the list a little bit more. Okay, so at number three, this is like a backwards chart show. Um, <laughs> just may, maybe, maybe should be the tagline for the next track. Um, <laughs> in at number three, we have Guardians of the Galaxy. At number four, Ed Sheeran's Divide, which I think is the only non-soundtrack new release, and that sells 62,000 units. Amy Winehouse's Back to Black, a record which really always wanted to be vinyl, didn't it? Prince's Purple Rain. Uh, top-selling album from the vinyl era. Uh, number seven, Bob Marley and the Wailers Legend, one of the best-selling albums of all time, and uh, it's not surprising to see it's still doing well as a reissue on vinyl. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon at number eight by Pink Floyd. Uh, number nine, the soundtrack to La La Land, uh, one of three newish albums on this list. And at number ten... The best-selling album of all time at 49,000 units, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Astounding to see the, the, the list of these records. And again, two of them are soundtracks. That One of them is old songs and one of them is new songs. Guardians of the Galaxy is songs from the 80s, I think. And La La Land is original music, but only one new release up there, which really shows the demographic that's buying vinyl. It, not that it's not necessarily young people, but if it is younger people, then they're more nostalgic and they're going for the... The safe choices in Dark Side of the Moon and, and the Bob Marley album. It's it's interesting that you put it like that, that the uh, consumers are going for safe choices. I think there's there's an alternative argument here. As one who runs record companies, I, I suspect that what we may be seeing is the result of a, a certain amount of playing safe on the part of the record company. See, if you if you press... 50,000 copies of Sgt. Pepper, you, you know that you're eventually going to shift those because, because that record has always sold well. It has a really solid track record. And uh, with a reissue and a reason to remarket that, you have an opportunity to, to shift a load of catalogue and make a load of money off that. With a new release, there's a lot of risk involved in going through the extra setup costs to produce a vinyl master and to ship all of that stock. Vinyl, although it's relatively inexpensive to produce in large quantities, it is harder to distribute. It's harder to get people to stock it. Record stores ran out of the shelves that hold vinyl years ago. They, they all sold them at flea markets. That's right. They shifted all of the shelves. They now haven't got anywhere to put it. They've got places to put CDs still. Um, and it's expensive to send it around because it's big and it's heavy and it's delicate. Does your best-selling chart go down to as far as finding a jazz album? I'm, I'm guessing the best-selling jazz album is kind of blue, but at, at, where would it come on the chart? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have that data. I'm sorry. Okay. Because Bob Marley's Legend is the reggae album that people have if they don't like reggae. It's like the basic reggae album that you have to have in your collection. But plus, it's there's a coolness factor, too, to all of those, there's the, the Thriller and Legend and Dark Side of the Moon, there, there's a coolness factor of having the LP. Yeah, and, and so Kind of Blue would be the, certainly the, the best-selling jazz album on vinyl. I, I can't imagine that any classical albums are anywhere near the, the top 
50 in, in these lists. I shouldn't think so. The weaknesses in the vinyl format are most apparent when you're listening to classical music. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of jazz albums, a lot of classic rock albums were conceived for this format. This is how people imagined they would be heard when they recorded them. And, you know, Kind of Blue is one of the big products of the of the LP era. It's one of the first records put out on LP. Whereas classical music largely predates the recording formats at all. And so he's best suited to something that is relatively transparent. You know, you, you, you're not going to appreciate the side A, side B program in a pair of Mozart symphonies because Mozart really did not have that in mind. I wonder how many 78s it would take to make up Mahler's third symphony, for example. You get f- about four to five minutes aside on a 10-inch uh, and up to about eight minutes on a 12-inch. Um and they did make single-sided 78s, but on double-sided 78s, then you'd be, you'd be looking at about three pounds of shellac. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's the present of vinyl. And again, we discussed in episode 51 the pros and the cons, and you're talking about that in terms of classical music on vinyl, you know, the background noise and, and the, the low fidelity when you get near the, the center of the record and all that. But vinyl has now become something that people are buying, A, because it's collectible, and as you said earlier, and even before we started recording, Dark Side of the Moon is one of the great album covers of all time, and it'd be nice to have that on the wall, though you can certainly buy a poster. So people buy it because it's collectible. People buy it because it's fashionable. It's a hipster thing. You know, I thought of something the other day. They're they're kind of like the action figures. <laughs> for You know, I mean, Star Wars has all this peripheral of stuff that you can buy because you're a Star Wars fan. Now, I, I thought of this because I heard Guardians of the Galaxy, which has, of course, music in it, but it's also one of a, a very popular movie. And the music is pretty cool, so it would be fun to have it, you know, as this accessory. Same thing with the La La Land, I'm sure. Uh, that's that's part of it, too, because of the charm of the music. It becomes this accessory that you can keep with you, and that's a keepsake. That's right. I remember seeing some research that... Uh... I was shown at a BPI presentation a couple of years ago on what people do with vinyl once they take it home. And a really alarming proportion of it was not ever listened to. And and that really speaks to this this idea that it's it's collectible. And also that by the time you bought something on vinyl, you've you've already got another way to listen to it. And I think that's it's fair to say that of most of the things I own on vinyl that if I'm if I want to listen to some music in the bath, I don't have to find a way to plug in a record player up there. Like I could just listen to my iPad on Spotify when I want convenience. But if I want to sit in my comfy chair with my speakers and go through the the uh, the, the tea ceremony of <laughs> of listening to an LP, then then I can do that, and you know, I can get clicks and pops, and I can lose high frequencies towards the end of each side and. And I can forget to turn it off when it gets to the end of the record and destroy my stylus. <laughs> so uh, it, it's an interesting point, and I remember seeing something about that last year, the percentage of people who never play the records. And I'll, and I'll try and find a, a source for this and link in the show notes. I don't remember if it was 25 or even 50%. What about the time of year that people vi- buy vinyl records? I'm thinking that this is the Christmas present for someone who likes music who might not even have a turntable. That's right. So when you look at the seasonality of record sales, 
it's always been that the fourth quarter is the time of year when you put out the really fancy records and that's when sales are highest. Certainly when I used to work at iTunes, our biggest sales day of the year was Christmas Day. So this is something that, that even carried over into uh, the beginnings of the digital music industry that people would get gift cards and they'd all redeem them on Christmas Day. And it, it got so busy that for many years the engineering teams had to go into the office on Christmas Day because one year on the busiest sales day of the year the, the store crashed. Uh, these days... As streaming is much more popular, you don't have the same gift card thing. And so digital sales are not as seasonal. But the format that is most seasonal, the one that has the uh, largest sales bump in the fourth quarter, is vinyl. But again, you would you would expect that if the big releases coming out on vinyl are major catalogue reissue projects. Because again, they would be fourth quarter things that um, are potential gifts for the middle-aged man who has everything. The equivalent of the big box sets in classical. Yeah, absolutely. So what about Record Store Day? I know that this started as a way of promoting independent record stores, and it turned out to an event that should probably be sponsored by eBay because so many people buy these limited edition records and flip them on eBay the following day. Does this actually have any effect on vinyl sales other than this one day a year people are talking about vinyl or a couple of weeks leading up to it? Well, I think it's it's important for three reasons. Record Store Day uh, reminds people that there is such a thing as a record store that you can go to. Uh, yeah, not where I live. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's always eBay, Kirk. Um, I know. So also it's a way of servicing interesting projects that are not expected to have mass appeal like so often at a record company what you're looking for is low risk predictable predictably performing products and record store day is an opportunity to put out strange b-sides which is a thing that's kind of got lost like you know the b-side of a cassette single used to often have something interesting on it and at the moment, now that we don't we don't really have B sides, you could do it as a like one off digital release, but otherwise these things don't see the light of day. And there's something really lovely about the about the limited run, almost ephemerality of a not super durable physical product. And this is something that I'm seeing with a lot of my clients, that they're putting together classical recordings. Um they're looking at all the hundreds of times somebody else has recorded this music and they're thinking, well, we make another record of this Beethoven and it's going to be recording number 357 of this piece and it's going to be out there and it'll be on Spotify and it'll be there forever and everyone will be able to get it and it'll just be, it'll just be a, a drop in the ocean. But we might be judged on it, so we don't want to take any risks with doing anything too different. Whereas if you are pressing a limited number of something, it sells, then it's gone, you can take risks. And that's part of the appeal of Record Store Day, but more broadly, it's part of the appeal of vinyl as a format because, apart from anything else, a, an LP has a limited lifespan. You know, the more times you play it, the worse it'll sound until it's basically done. So what about the future of vinyl? Where does where does it go? Does it remain 
a fad, fashionable hipster thing or nostalgic baby boomer thing? Can, can this format ever really have legs or does it matter at all? Is it just part of the landscape now that will be a certain percentage of income for record labels and independent bands? Well, I think what we're seeing is a kind of rebalancing of the of the market where you have the the people who all bought CDs are spitting off into their I want physical thing and it's going to be big and it's going to be lovely and it's going to be slightly inconvenient and you've got your convenience purchasers doing their streaming and their downloading. But you've also got, as as these markets diverge, you also have a, a divergence in the content. And, of course, there's some fairly big corporate catalogue marketing things going on. But you also you also have the more interesting products getting put out on vinyl. And I think what we are going to see over time is that you know, vinyl's going to stick around. You'll still be able to get your jazz reissues. You'll still be able to get your classic rock reissues. But also vinyl will be the place where people take, established artists take more creative risk because there's less fear that this thing is going to be on the internet forever if you put it out on an LP. I'm curious. Have you produced any uh, vinyl? Have any of your projects gone to vinyl? A couple, yeah. It's it's relatively rare for a classical project to go to vinyl, and it's something that we often talk about. And this is this is certainly one of the one of the big changes. Uh, if you put out a record now, like I just did this uh, this recording of uh, Steve Rice drumming with uh, the Colin Curry group, and that's something where we it was part of our launch plan. Are we going to do vinyl? Should we do vinyl? What would it cost? We'd sound out the demand for it. Uh, that one, we did not do vinyl at release, but there is a fairly good chance that it will at some point be issued on vinyl. It's just, it's kind of a question of seeing how well it does in the market and whether or not there's going to be a demand for it. Because at the point at which you've made the record and not yet released the record, you have the maximum risk involved. You've spent, you know, you've pressed all the CDs and you've, made the master you've done you spent as much money as you're ever going to spend on this you've done your advertising and you have no information from the market about whether or not anyone's going to buy it and so to shell out at that point on a load of vinyl is a little bit scary but uh if the record is popular if people like it then and if it gets well if it gets good reviews then at that point, it becomes kind of sensible to to look at do we do a run of five hundred units on on vinyl? Does it necessarily require a um, a proportionate additional amount of marketing to push the vinyl sales, or do you know what I mean? Is that a consideration as well? Because I mean, it seems to me you've got to get into some places that you know not everybody's into vinyl. You can't advertise in Time Magazine or Rolling Stone. You know, you've got to go. You've got to be more particular. That's right. But there are also retail outlets. You can go with uh, vinyl for a minimalist 20th century percussion record that you couldn't necessarily with that product on, on CD. There's, there's fashion retailers that might conceivably carry that record that would never have, that you would never consider the CD. So, so there are, you know, to do it really well, you have to think it through. It is it is a bit different. The retail marketplace is a bit different. But 
the setup costs are not so high that you can't recoup on a relatively short run of a, a few hundred units. You don't want to be in a position though where you've you've done all of that setup and you sell twenty five copies through Amazon because then apart from anything else you have you have a very large stock that you're storing and when you're running a record company you you feel haunted by your overstock all the time all of those unsold cds are like staring over your shoulder at everything you do but when it's unsold vinyl it is it is big it is a it is a heavy millstone to drag around with you. You said something interesting, Andy. You said that you might be able to sell a 20th century minimalist percussion record in a fashion boutique. Where is vinyl being sold? Is there a new network of stores that sell vinyl because of this fashionable aspect? Obviously, you can buy vinyl on Amazon, but where, what other types of stores are selling vinyl? Honestly, I'm 38 years old and I have three children and I play the French horn and I cannot remember the last time I went into a fashion retailer. But I do understand that the young people go into shops where it's possible to buy both clothing and recorded music in esoteric formats. Wow. We've certainly come a long way. We have. <laughs> so I worked in a bookstore um, in France in the early 1990s and we had 50,000 books in the store. It was a fairly decent-sized book, but we also sold some CDs, in part because we were selling books that were distributed by Harmonia Mundi in France that distributes a number of small presses, and Harmonia Mundi also is a well-known classical label. So we were selling Harmonia Mundi records and records by labels that distributed. Now, it wasn't that common in France for a smaller bookstore to be selling CDs. The big chains, obviously, they did books and CDs and DVDs or, or, or VHS or whatever. But it's true that today vinyl does end up being that kind of... I mean, I'm remembering buying records also in health food stores, and particularly Wyndham Hill, which was a really interesting label that, you know, they got they got branded as New Age, but I think a lot of the music really wouldn't fit as New Age. But they chose to exploit this channel that no one else was exploiting, and they made George Winston a huge bestseller, for example. Right. There was also... Uh... The world music label Putumayo, uh, which certainly used to be, I don't know if it still is, stocked at uh, Whole Foods. Celestial Harmonies was another one. They were, the, they were the real New Age label. But you would find their records in, in those types of stores where you wouldn't find Beatles or Pink Floyd albums. That's right. Um, and Urban Outfitters has made a big thing about uh, stocking and promoting vinyl in their stores as well as the uh, the accessories, frames so that you can display it on the walls, uh, shelving, uh, modern record players that you can plug into your computer, all sorts of ways to enjoy, celebrate and display your use of vinyl as, a, as both a musical and as a lifestyle choice. Vinyl as a lifestyle choice. Well, it's certainly not a convenient way to listen to music, let's be honest. <laughs> No, it's not. You can't play it in the car. It's fragile. And you do need the, as you said earlier, the tea ceremony of vinyl records. But as you will have noticed in our recent episode on silence, Doug wrote an Apple script, which allows you to select a number of tracks in iTunes to choose where the end of each side is to play a single side. And then it pauses iTunes till you get up and you start playing the second side. Or if it's a uh, two-disc set, all four sides and so on. It's actually kind of fun because you do have that mandatory pause between the sides and you know if you're listening to a record and you're familiar with it as 
well, the example we used was Exile on Main Street. You're used to it as four components. And when you have a space between the sides, it's, well, it, for us, we wax nostalgic because it makes more sense that way. It, things don't run into to each other. This is, this is what happens when you get three middle-aged white men in one conversation. They start inventing incredibly complex technological ways to make things less convenient for themselves for weird nostalgic reasons. <laughs> That's exactly what Apple Script is for. Yeah, so can you can you write an Apple Script that, that knocks down the high frequencies in the EQ as you get towards the end of each side? <laughs> as it gets longer, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Yes, you could you could apply a different EQ to each track, maybe. You probably couldn't do it while it's playing or something, but that would be a good point. Andy, how many vinyl records do you have? A uh, couple of hundred, maybe. And these are all things you've bought in I don't know the last ten years, or some of these from your childhood. Uh, no, I think although some of my vinyl is older than me, I've not had any of it for more than twenty years. So this is all acquired during the era of CD. But I also have music on on shellac, on quarter inch tape, thousands of CDs. Um, no cassettes. Do you use cassettes at all? They seem to be doing something too cassette sales did also increase last year um cassettes are seeing a, a bit of a comeback um in the big markets they never really went away in uh india pakistan in places where people did not get cd players the compact cassette survived long into the cd era but it is seeing something of a a comeback on boutique labels in the in the uk and the us but but not nearly as big as vinyl a lot of bands distribute their music on cassettes uh, you know at their gigs and that kind of thing because it's convenient to make them. it's convenient to make them uh it's relatively inexpensive and there's a kind of fun nostalgia to it if you if you're of a certain age i think i may be too old to really get excited about cassettes or maybe i'm too young i don't know I, i'm i'm out of sync with whatever cycle of retro <laughs> That, that is. Thank you very much, Andy, for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me on the show. It's fun as always. Before we take off, we want to present our next tracks, the music that we'll be listening to. Kirk? Sometimes when we record an episode of the podcast, I really don't have an idea for what my next track is. And I'll go through my iTunes library and I'll think, what have I not listened to in a few years that I really like and I really want to listen to again? So I've picked a recording by Perotin, P-E-R-O-T-I-N, link in the show notes, by the Hilliard Ensemble, and the name of the record is just Perotin. It's on ECM Records. Uh, this is a record from, I believe, sometime in the 1990s. Perotin was born near the end of the 12th century, beginning of the 13th century. So this is really early medieval vocal music. It's four-part polyphonic music. There's no instruments going on. And... There's a lot of music like that. The Hilliard Ensemble, by the way, is one of the best performing groups of this sort of music. One of the most interesting things about the style of Perrotin's music is that you often have a sort of a, a, a note that continues, kind of like a drone and very long. And in the first track uh, of this record, it is called Viderunt Omnes. Now, my Latin's not very good, so I think it just means long song. It's 11 and a half minutes. And there is a low note that's going on, I think, for like three minutes. And it's amazing that this singer is able to maintain this note so long. This is 
religious music. This is very, very old music. But there is a certain amount of lilt in the music. You can almost dance to some of the songs. And, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there is something truly magical in the sound that this group gets from this music. There are a handful of composers who are known from this period. Léonard is another. I believe he was in Paris, and, and I think this was called the Notre Dame School of Polyphonic Music. It's fascinating stuff. It's otherworldly. And, and when you hear four voices singing in such harmony together, it's truly magical. I'll link to the CD in the show notes, and you can look it up on Apple Music, Spotify, whatever your streaming service is, because it's on ECM Records, who started streaming their music last year. If you've never heard music of this period, I think you'll find it really gripping. Doug, what have you got? For my next track, I wanted to pick something that uh, I used to own on vinyl that I thought was particularly notable. Now, one of the disadvantages of physical media is that some people, your so-called friends, would often borrow a record, either an LP or a CD or cassette, and then they would never return it. Now, one time in college, I think we had a party and someone walked off with about half a dozen of my albums. But anyway, the LP that I remember having to replace at least three or four times back then was Rockpile's Seconds of Pleasure from 1980. And as you may know, Rockpile is Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, Billy Bremer, and Terry Williams. Now, they only put out one album under that name, but actually this was the band that performed on most of Dave Edmonds' albums and many of Nick Lowe's albums during the 70s. But because of contractual gobbledygook, they were never able to release a record as a band until 1980. And then after they did, they never really played much together again. Occasionally two or three of them would perform or record together, but uh, they never did it again as Rockpile. And understandably, because it would be hard to top Seconds of Pleasure. Every song is a gem. The original album came with an EP of Edmonds and Lowe doing acoustic Everly Brothers covers, which I thought was awesome. And th those tracks are now included as bonus tracks on the CD and streaming versions. But of course, the album is just a great example of Rockpile's rockabilly, rock and roll, pub rock, whatever you want to call it. Just I just love that record. So whoever stole my LPs, I hope you're enjoying them. Rockpile, Seconds of Pleasure, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.